So, um, you know, what's going on tonight is that there's supposed to be a debate on television. I mean, I I, I use the word uh, advisedly, uh, but it suggests that maybe we could talk about the word debate. Well, why not? I mean, yeah, I know I wouldn't know what you mean by advisedly because obviously it's uh, more like a Punch and Judy puppet show where you're waiting to see what kind of craziness the puppeteer starts using, what kind of sight gags. Yeah, yeah. And, and even before we got to the debate as circus kind of situation, you know, even in prior years, there was still um, an element of, you know, not really debating the issues, but really just trying to take as much time as possible to talk about the stuff you wanted to talk about. Yeah, yeah. You, you hear, hear that a lot at the town hall meetings, too. Same thing. So I think in our school, we, we really do talk about what debate should be, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's a... You argue a premise that, that you trust is acceptable to everyone there and then take that premise into a situation where the issue exists and see if you can clearly make the reasoning deductively that anyone who agrees with the principle or the premise involved should agree with the conclusion where you're applying the, the principle to the situation. But there's more than one way to skin a cat, so there's different, different ways to approach applying a principle to a situation. Yeah. So how to make the most compelling argument. But it's, it's of course, very orderly. I'm just looking at debate here, old French, debater, to fight or contend. Debate from D.E. and batter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this dictionary seems to reach as far back as the old French, but not further. Huh. To discuss opposing reasons. Right. To argue. So you have reasoning processes that seem to oppose each other, especially in the case where your debate is about a yes or no question. In uh, high school, we were the year I was doing debate. I think the question for the school district was: Should the federal government basically subsidize or finance public elementary and secondary education? Uh, and of course, uh, all of us who wanted to jump on the liberal side of that said, "Hell yeah!" <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, the one of the most effective arguments. I mean, which, which seems on the face of it, one one would agree that it, uh, most people would agree anyway that. A governing body of a country or province or an area, it should reasonably be involved in seeing that the population of the people are generally well cared for, well fed, and, and, and well educated. The idea of a government existing so that everybody's living condition can be maintained at a, at a high state, it's reasonable that education should be in there somewhere. But one of the, one of the most effective arguments against that that I ran into in my experience, was the argument that rural areas of the country couldn't fairly participate in the federal government's funding of public elementary and secondary education because of the different kinds of economics in, in, the, in the suburbs or in the, out in the country, out in rural areas at that time, as opposed to the city areas where there were lots of people. So the argument was that the funding would be being based on the number of students uh, in the area. The city would get all the money and the rural people would be left out. So that somehow got turned into an argument. So, so the federal government shouldn't do it. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a very, it was a very effective argument in Houston, Texas, in 1963. So, what we have is a situation where somebody takes one side of a question, and another person takes the other side of the question, and they marshal their their facts, they marshal all of their data, and they uh -huh. try to argue for the one side or the other, and so. It, 
debate is this contest of people hashing out a question. Right. And I think in the founding days of the Republic, our Republic, the United States of America, this sort of thing was, was a real process. Questions actually were argued. Yes, it was, there, it was formal. Yeah. It was a formal discussion on those points. Whereas now we have a situation where people have positions that they defend, and they're not really interested in arguing because they have their position and all they can do is try to reinforce their position rather than actually being engaged in an argument that could change your mind. Yeah, that's right. And the position that they take and defend very often is a position based on, well, getting the most voters possible to agree with you. Uh-huh. The positions being taken often have something to do with uh, some other subject entirely, not, not really talking about the question at all. And not really talking about the question, but rather how my position agrees with, hopefully, with the largest number of people that will be voting. So the, the aim is not to clarify and like to argue the question and find out what the best or right answer is, but rather to, uh, it's a sales pitch. Right. Or it's a PR kind of thing. Then where that purpose in debating becomes the priority, as it obviously is for people vying for elected seats, other kinds of values clutter things up, you know, entertainment value, just um, power of presentation, that sort of thing. It can lead at the very extreme to some of the things we've witnessed on television this year. Well, going back to the very first television debate uh-huh. between presidential candidates, that was Kennedy and Nixon in 1960. Yes, and Kennedy's youth and vigor really did put Nixon at a disadvantage. Yeah, the, the Republican side didn't realize the value of a good makeup artist. Yeah. <laughs> Nixon looked ghastly. I think he, he improved. I think there were two debates or three. There might have been three. Yeah. But um, it was interesting to see how both sides you know, made, made adjustments after the first debate. I think uh, the Senator Kennedy took a lesson that had him being much more vocal about protecting the United States from evil influences like Russia and that sort of thing in, this, in the second and third debates. And, of course, Mr. Nixon improved his appearance a good bit. Uh-huh. But they were they clearly more focused on the issues at hand. There was obviously still some pitch involved, but it wasn't driving. It wasn't driving their positions. Right. They had, had real positions that they were arguing. So I think there's an interesting analogy here that we might make, and that would be when you get into your third step, because in translation, we have the different steps and the argument happens in the third step. Right. And I think before we even get started, I may as well just say the only debate worth having is the one with your own thoughts. Uh-huh. So, But in the third step, I think sometimes we do get some of this stuff, right? There's a good analogy there, because when you're reasoning through with using the words in your, your third step, you know, sometimes uh, you get distracted. Your ego, I guess, throws up distractions like, oh, it's really hot right now. I don't feel like doing this or, uh, right. um, good God, I haven't done the dishes. I better go do the dishes, <laughs> you know, and stuff yeah. like that. So it's almost analogous to that, the way that you avoid really addressing the thing that's that's driving the question rather than, well, instead of doing that, distracting yourself with other stuff. Yes, yes. Yeah, I can see why you say we do get some of that in our third step. Yeah, like you say, it's often indicative of a point where a real breakthrough in perceiving the question 
maybe about to happen, but usually at the cost of sacrificing some previous concept of something that you held very dear. It's something about when you start deductively reasoning in the third step from the major premise and the minor premise, sometimes it's you get between a, a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And the, and, the, and the rock is your preconceived notions that you brought into your translation. And the hard place is the excluded middle, which is will drive you if you stay with the process, if you stay with the, with the order, cannot tolerate your preconceived notion of what's going on here. Uh -huh. And all of this happening perhaps at a subliminal level, it sort of like emerges as a little sweaty brow. And I just need to step outside for a minute. It's warm in here. <laughs> <laughs> or as you say, you know, did, did I do those dishes? <laughs> that sort of thing. And a good debate, I think, whether with your own thoughts or when you're actually in a situation where you're debating with another person in a, in a formal organized debate, a well-organized debate, an orderly debate, has a real possibility of, if not changing viewpoints, at least making one acknowledge other ways of looking at the issue. Uh -huh. So it can be a challenge that results in a revelation. But again, that requires really agreeing on the question and sticking with the question you know, once you write the second step of a translation, here's what this, here's what the sense testimony is, here's what appears to be happening. And getting at the heart of that is, that's the job. That's what, that's the goal. That's, that's what keeps things from running all over the place most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So in, in a formal debate, when both people really stay on the question. And I think that's what it's officially called when you're doing, certainly wasn't in our day when the question, should this take place or should it not take place? Yes or no? It's interesting that the thing where everybody must focus on the, on the original question, the one that we agreed to debate, and that keeps things from being drawn off by extraneous happenings or just being drawn off by subliminal fear of having to give up an idea about ourselves or having to be willing to say that perhaps our sacred preconceived notion about something isn't all there is, isn't the only way to see this. Yes, yeah. So we, we have a sense of duality, right, in the right in the word, uh, de battre, which is, you know, to, to, to uh -huh. combat. Uh -huh. And so there's a sense of one is against the other. But I believe uh -huh. that if we understand what we're actually doing, then we understand it's like this idea of polarity, right, that their polarities appear to be opposed to one another. But what they really are are two approaches, two viewpoints of the same thing. Yes, and so instead of thinking of, and, and, and you know, it's, it's all through the language of our political system. It's a battle. It's a combat. There's an arena. But if we, for our own process of, of organizing our mind and organizing our, our spiritual sense, I think we, under, we need to understand that the, the debate or the combat is an airing of the two sides, the two, the two viewpoints, and understanding that the, the two viewpoints aren't separated. They're actually two angles right. of looking at the same thing. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things to get through when you're teaching, you know, to get over to people. Yeah, I think so. Because the, yeah, the, the separating quality of the, the appearance you know, runs deep. It's interesting to the word argue which is kind of what we talk about in class. An argument is a deductive series of thoughts. And argue comes from one of the early meanings of it. In Latin, argutari has to do with gleaming or illumination. Oh. So arguing a question huh. is, in fact, bringing illumination to it, which is a, a clearer viewpoint perspective, a less limited or less confined perspective, mm -hmm. more light on the subject at hand. But it's not then, it's not an act of separating and dividing, but it's an act of coming together in a new place 
And while that may be resisted for the sake of your voter base or for the sake of your own belief in yourself, it's not about you separating yourself from the other person in the question, but rather uniting with the other person in the question. If the process is allowed to take place as it should, to be, if it's a real debate, there's a unifying quality to the outcome and hopefully a, a, a new way of seeing. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like that image of a gleam, right? It's, there's actually consciousness generated mm-hmm. by it. Yeah. I mean, anything that we can use to grow consciousness, to bring it forth in our lives, to me, that, that's probably more important than anything. Yeah. That's really what is going to be required in the future in any event. That, that, and in that we tend to all agree that, yes, we need to think differently in the future. We well enough acquainted now with when a, a particular way of thinking is past its time and when it's past its time is done and when time for a new way of thinking it even if you don't like it or agree with it or if you feel like it's being forced on you it's the march of evolution of consciousness and so it's the future what that's going to be and of course that's that's using the best of the past in a way as opposed to try and return to the past but rather use the best of the past our experience our facts instances where we could show the effect of one thing or another to arrive at that thing which will prepare us, our children, our fellow man, for the future. Well, that's a very worthwhile project. Yeah. And uh, sit and quietly meditate after we finish this call, sending my thoughts to the two debaters this evening. (laughs) If there's a crevice somewhere in your consciousness to consider this is what you're doing tonight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, go for it, man. Nonetheless, but every time we sit down and write out our first and second steps, we're engaging in an act of futurism. Yeah. Looking for the gleam.